You've tuned into The Dr. Lowe Show with naturopathic doctor, Dr. Lauren Noel, where you hear the best in natural medicine, nutrition, and mindset from the world's top doctors, authors, influencers, and Dr. Lowe herself. Trying just to pop a pill for a symptom? You've got the wrong exit. Seeking doable ways to live a happier, healthier life and have fun doing it? Welcome to The Dr. Lowe Show. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Dr. Lowe Show. I am your host, Dr. Lauren Noel. Thanks for joining me. Great to have you. I really enjoyed recording this episode and I think you will enjoy it as well. I am on my lunch break at the office here at Shine Natural Medicine and uh, yeah, it's been a good day seeing patients. If you have been following me over on my social media, although I've been taking a little bit of a break since the election because it's a little intense, but um, if you've been following me, I'm in the process of, you know, actually I finally pretty much just finished moving out of a moldy house and into a temporary place while my house is getting remediated and fixed up and we're going to do some renovations while we're at it. Why not? Um, so that has been a huge learning experience. I think I will be probably the mold expert of the century once this is all said and done. So yeah, silver lining, right? Silver lining. And we talk a lot on, on this episode about the thyroid. We talk a lot about lab testing. Pretty much the majority of the episode was talking about all of the misconceptions about iodine, which is very, very misunderstood um, by just the average person and actually most doctors. And I had learned a lot myself. But I will say if you um, are listening to this and you think, gosh, I think I'm dealing with some thyroid issues and I just need some help uh, navigating through this, I need someone to do the proper lab testing, I would be more than happy to work with you. I've been treating thyroid issues for 10 plus years. Um, it's something that I have dealt with as a patient, so I can really empathize with you. And um, I would be just really happy to support you in getting better. So if you want to learn more about that process, you can head over to shinenaturalmedicine.com and you can just reach out to us. If you have questions about how that process works, you can give us a ring and our information is on that website. On this episode, we talk a lot about nutrients that help with thyroid function. And this is a big area where conventional medicine really misses the mark on helping patients because your thyroid needs a lot of things to work properly. It needs selenium, it needs zinc, it needs vitamin C, it needs chromium, it needs copper. And one of the nutrients, especially that it needs is iron. Um, I actually prescribed this particular supplement twice today for patients before hopping on this recording. And um, just to plug our show sponsor and also give some um, some tools to help with the thyroid is over at paleovalley.com. They have, and they've actually just restocked it because it's been out, um, their organ complex. I've been using this for patients who have low iron. It is a great source of iron. And what I like about it is it's using just the healing power of nature. It has grass-fed beef, uh, liver, and uh, heart, and kidneys. So I know that sounds weird, but historically, did you know that people would actually eat the entire animal, not just the muscle? In fact, the muscle was really eaten last because it's as the it's less nutritious than the organs. So, um, but most people can't really stomach the idea of eating animal organs. So, a really great way around that is to do capsules. 
But especially for women, if you have uh, regular periods, if you have heavy periods, um, you probably have some iron issues. So it's good to get the labs done. But I do think just for general wellness, especially if you are not a fan of eating red meat, um, using some of the organ complex uh, supplements are a great way to get that in your diet. So you can head over to paleovalley.com. And for my listeners only, you get a discount if you use the code Dr. Lowe, D-R-L-O, and you get 15% off. All right, let's jump into the show and talk with our friend, Dr. Christensen. And actually, I forgot to mention his bio on the show. So let me give that to you because he is quite impressive. So Dr. Christensen is a naturopathic doctor. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and he calls himself a wannabe athlete. He and his wife, Kieran, have been happily married for over 20 years. They have uh, two awesome kids, young adult kids, and he has been featured on The Doctors. He's been on NPR. He's been on Dr. Oz, uh, Fox, Hay House Radio, NBC, Today Show. I mean, all of the different things, Women's World. Um, he's also written a couple of books, actually uh, a few books, The Adrenal Reset Diet, which we've talked with him about on the show before, The Metabolism Reset Diet. He's also, he wrote The Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease and his brand new book that is released in January, which you can pre-order, is The Thyroid Reset Diet. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Enjoy. All right. We have a wonderful repeat guest on the show, Dr. Alan Christensen, and always a pleasure to have you. Always an honor. We are grateful to have your expertise. It's always so special to talk to a fellow ND. They're always my favorites, but you know, <laughs> love all my guests. So welcome back to the show. Hey, Dr. Newell. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. So you are the thyroid expert. You've been specializing in this for a long time. Um, you've helped so many patients. I know you have a lot of exciting things coming. We talked before recording about um, a nonprofit that you are creating. Can you tell us about that real quick? For sure. This is the American College of Thyroidology and will be a training module for conventional and alternative practitioners pulling together the best practices. We really want to just help thyroid patients do better. We want uh, doctors and practitioners, whatever their background, to have resources to cutting edge stuff and uh, new perspectives. Mm-hmm. So important. So for any of you guys listening who, you know, maybe you're endocrinologist, you feel like they could use some brushing up on some thyroid knowledge, you can send them to that resource. Um, what is that? How can people learn more about that or doctors learn more about that? Well, we'll be kicking off in January. So uh, American College of Thyroidology, uh, that's one of our URLs. They can always find us through that. And okay. Nothing's there right now, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, by the time we um, release this, that it'll be easier. So Wonderful. Well, um, it's a different world since we last chatted. A lot of things <laughs> happening. I was saying before that we've recorded, it's like, we just got to keep laughing. Sometimes it's a hy- hysterical laugh. <laughs> uh, emphasis on the hysteria part, but um, you know, we got to keep it light and um, laughter is the best medicine and you're, you're good at that. <laughs> you have the most infectious laughter. So um, we always love the lightness and the joy that you bring and you know, and with something like thyroid issues, a lot of our patients really struggle with this, right? And so being able to see the bright side of it and know that there are so many things that can help 
is just so valuable. So, you know, in conventional medicine, unfortunately, thyroid issues are, they're not managed very well. And I can say this from experience, having my own thyroid history in high school and um, which was missed for many, many years. And then finally mm. in my twenties was finally put on Synthroid, um, which did help me lose weight. It was pretty cool. Actually, I just dropped a bunch of weight and that was, that was great and everything, but, um, but it just wasn't managed well until fast forward into, you know, late twenties and even thirties. I felt like it was finally managed better in my thirties. And so I do sympathize with patients a lot with this. Um, but having it addressed is a game changer. It's like, they feel like a completely different person because the thyroid does so much in the body. Um, so before we jump into the specifics on your new book, um, which is the thyroid reset diet book. So we'll talk mm -hmm. a lot about diet, a lot about nutrition. Let's just do a quick little overview on, um, you know, what thyroid issues can look like in case people are listening and may not know that they could have an issue with it. Yeah. Yeah. Big thing. And actually just last week, a paper came out showing that the prevalence of thyroid treatment doubled from the end of the nineties to the uh, 2016. Wow. So, that was that was a new perspective. We've seen thyroid cancer rates triple in about the same time frame. So this is really on the uptick. And you know, a lot of common symptoms, a lot of ones that can go by other causes, but we see hair loss, uh, unexplained weight gain, like you mentioned, fatigue issues. They're the top three, but menstrual yeah. irregularities, digestion, chronic pain. And kind of an insight is that it can be a symptom that's been there forever, but it's especially suspicious when a couple of those things change together at a set time frame. That's really mm -hmm. likely to be tied to the thyroid then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you're, one thing you're so great at is um, just staying up on the current research with thyroid since it is such a specialty for you and there's always new information that is coming out. So what are some of the new findings? I mean, this is pretty staggering about the just the, such huge changes in the numbers. Are there any other yeah. findings that you're seeing for like, causes or, yeah? Yeah, causes has been one of those. As a generalization, there was a big, uh, massive effort in research that went down in about 2007. Uh, this was the, the century anniversary of Dr. Hashimoto identifying the main cause of thyroid disease. And a lot of folks said, what do we have to show for the last 100 years? <laughs> right. They weren't, they weren't proud of it, you know, mm -hmm. so they really doubled down and funded a lot of new studies and did a lot of new analysis of existing work and many new perspectives have emerged. So in terms of causes of thyroid disease, there are many that have been lingering around as possible causes or contributors to some degree. But if we pull out the ones that don't show up consistently or the ones that may not have large contributions, there's basically three irrefutable causes left. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. uh, two of which are called existential, meaning they're just elements that we can't change, you know, age and gender. <laughs> so. <laughs> Those two off the bat, being female, female gender, that's, a, that's one of the largest causes. And then age, you know, whatever factors, whatever biochemical insults, every year that goes by, there's one more year in which they have a chance of happening. So age and gender are the two biggest known factors, but not changeable. So we'll talk a lot about the relevance of iodine. And the exciting new story is that it's known to be a cause. We now know that our iodine tolerance is within a narrower range than we thought. And for some people, it's narrower yet, and those are the ones prone to thyroid disease. And the cool part is that it's not an existential cause, meaning that if it were a culprit, it's also an opportunity. So mm -hmm. we now know the thyroid can heal given the right iodine exposure. Wow, amazing. And so of those three causes, the, the third one is the, toler is the iodine, right? And that's the one that we can address? Yep. Okay. Yeah. 
And we've had data forever showing that too little of it can be a culprit for all versions of thyroid disease and then mm -hmm. toxic amounts can be as well. But yeah, now we know that the range is narrow. It's easy to get too much and resetting that whole process, the gland can regrow cells, can start working and the immune system can stop attacking it. So that's incredible. Is, yeah. yeah. And you know, that it's been considered as being something that isn't really reversible, right? Thyroid disease, but this is finding that it is using this, right? You can actually help to heal how the thyroid functions. We'll go way deep into this, but there's been a, several clinical trials like this one in which they've shown that within per study, eight weeks to 12 weeks with nothing else than iodine regulation, about 70 to 80% of people who have had thyroid disease for about four years, um, TSH scores of 14 to 18, 70 to 80% of them can fully have normal thyroid function within eight to 12 weeks with just that. That's crazy. And so for people who don't know uh, lab ranges, that is severe hypothyroidism. I yeah. mean, for me, I like to see the TSH from a one to two. I don't know what your yeah. ideal is. So if it's something higher than that, and it's a reverse relationship, right? So some yeah. people aren't familiar, the higher your TSH, that means your thyroid is more on the underactive side. And so if you have a TSH at 14, I mean, your thyroid <laughs> is extremely underactive. Yeah. Wow. That's so that's, that's the exciting thing. We've never seen anything like this in the last 25 years. And, and that's without having to go on medication. Correct. That was no medication. That was nothing else other than simple dietary intervention. Mm -hmm. And how, does it, how is it that iodine, and what is iodine exactly for people? You, know, I mean, you hear about iodine, but what is it exactly? And, and how is it that the thyroid needs it? Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. You know, so we think about all the various building blocks we need for our bodies to work. And we've got these essential micronutrients. And this is one of those. It's unique in that it's at a whole different part of the periodic table. It's a very different chemical than anything else that we're exposed to. And it's the only thing that we have to concentrate in special compartments. So we actually ingest iodide, but then we make it into iodine within small little pockets of the thyroid. And that's, that's all good, but the little bits of excess can be traumas. So it's, it's part of what makes thyroid hormones. We take proteins innate to the thyroid and we attach iodine to them and we then get the various T3, T4, T2. And those numbers just refer to how many atoms of iodine are on the active hormone. So forming, we sticking iodine on the T protein and then using them is pulling iodine atoms off that T protein going four, three, two, one, you know, and zero. Mm -hmm. So it's completely essential for that. And a full thyroid panel would, would check T4 and T3. Are there labs that can check T1 and 2? Um, no. It would be okay. nice if there were. There are, there are ones used in, clinic, in, in uh, medical research to look at T2, but not available for us in clinical practice right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but if someone is taking something like Armour or Nitrothroid or something like that, they're getting the whole spectrum, right? You're exactly right. And that's the cool thing. I am a fan of natural desiccated thyroid. You just mentioned some big brands of that. Mm -hmm. And it is that it's got that full range of those hormones. There's actually a lot of other things called thyroamines that are biologically active, like triac as well. So there's probably about a dozen and a half biologically active thyroid hormones that are in natural thyroid. Hmm. Do you have a favorite, one that you tend to recommend for most people? Um, you know, so the differences between the brands, uh, binders or fillers is one difference, and then standardization, and then availability. So what can you right. measure as a consideration? That's true. <laughs> You well, got to think about all those, those. Let's say availability is is there and, and all of that. Do you have a favorite? Assuming then it would be then it would be WP thyroid, okay. which mm -hmm. is just basically a clean version of desiccated thyroid without binders or fillers in yeah. a well standardized form. 
do you ever find that it's not standardized very well or hard to get? Hard to get is not uncommon. And right. There's recalls. So right. thyroid meds uh, between 20, 2000, 15, 2012 and 2017, there were 100 recalls on thyroid <laughs> medications. So ah, get your stuff together, people. <laughs> well, the problem is that it, this is the microgram world. You know, mm, thyroid hormones, right. and iodine, it's all thousands of a grain of salt for active ingredients. And so thankfully, recalls, I actually like it because it means somebody's looking. They're actually checking stuff, at least after the fact. So yeah. better to have them than not. But it's True. just tough to make those things perfectly all the time. Yeah, we, we had to deal with a recall issue at our clinic. But fortunately, our pharmacy was there to help out. So people are still able to get their thyroid. Because yeah, if you don't have it, it's like you feel like night and day difference. Yeah. Um, so back to the iodine conversation, um, our people typically low in this, just the average person, because, you know, salt is iodized, right? So yeah. how does that work? Well, so the, the amount that we have right now, um, averages are funny. You know, there was a joke about a, uh, a statistician who wanted to be at a comfortable temperature. So he put his feet in the oven and his head in ice water, and he was at a good average temperature, you know? So <laughs> the average intake of the Americans is currently defined by the World Health Organization as at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess. So overall, our nation is categorized as such. And it's pretty wild. If we were to go back to uh, 1992, we had 112 nations on earth that were considered severely iodine deficient. And it was a huge problem. It's been a problem in many, many pockets of the world through many parts of history. But now if we go from 92 to 2014, that 112 number goes down to zero. There's now zero countries considered severely iodine deficient. But we have 52 countries that are categorized as at-risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess. Mm. And then in the U.S., if you look at subpopulations uh, per gender, per ethnicity, per age, there's a lot of subpopulations to where 30 40% of people are severely at risk due to iodine excess. And that's especially women of all, all ethnicities in the classic ages that develop thyroid disease. Hmm, that's so confusing, you know? So how is it that, that so many people are considered having an excess, but there's thyroid problems that taking thyroid in or iodine in can help? Well, it's a disconnect, right? Yeah, in terms of thyroid problems that taking iodine in can help, that was a big issue historically, but now not so much. Mm. There's, a, there's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of, lot of ideas floating around in natural medicine that have been popularized that makes sense, but just don't line up with what we now know about iodine or what, what we currently know about it. Interesting. So would you say that more of the problems are due to too much iodine versus not enough? Is that what we're... Yeah, pretty I strong mean, generalization. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's wild. Um, what if someone is just doing like sea salt and they're not getting iodized? So salt is fascinating. And in terms of like the thyroid reset, it's one of the easiest parallel changes because you don't have to give up salt, really. There's a lot of salts that don't have added iodine. Sea salt's all over the board. Mm -hmm. You know, I found not, not as many assays as I would like, but all the assays I found show incredibly discordant amounts. There are a few products like uh, Celtic brand light gray and Celtic brand light gray coarse sea salt that are pretty low. Malden's brand, which is really cool stuff. It's also quite low in iodine, but things like pink Himalayan salt actually has twice the iodine that iodized salt does. And other versions, some, some versions of sea salt are iodized, most are not. But even of those that are not, the, the iodine levels are all over the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is. That is one, one way we know about this is that for quite a while, people have had to go on low iodine regimes before they do various types of medical treatments. 
So some treatments require them to absorb iodine very efficiently, and they have to be in a low iodine state coming into it. Mm -hmm. And that's where we've got a lot of data about how lower iodine response can affect people and what some sources are like the various types of salts. Mm -hmm. So what about just doing a bunch of sea snacks all the time? I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, so sea, seaweed, uh, certainly a lot of minerals, a lot of nutrients, but pretty high amounts of iodine. So right. snacks are generally nori strips. And of seaweed, they're the lowest by far, but still per a sheet, they can be anywhere from like 70 to about 300 extra micrograms. Now, if you think about kelp or dulse or wakame, now we're going up by a factor of 100 per serving. They're like way, way more potent. <laughs> Amazing. So for like the average person, do you not really recommend to have those on a regular, just kind of, kind of sparingly? Yeah. And, you know, I think about people in a couple of categories. So there's those who, well, in my world, it seems like everyone has thyroid disease. So it's hard for me to think sure. about yeah. anything else, <laughs> but there's those that have it and are actively trying to improve upon it. And then there's those that are just trying to maintain, they're trying to stay stable. So when they're actively trying to improve upon that, uh, I've broken foods down into red, yellow, green light. And at that stage, just avoid the red light and yellow light foods and just do green light to get things better. If you're stabilized, things are status quo, throw in a couple of yellow light foods, you know, one or two per day and no problems. So, yeah. Mm. That's really helpful. Well, you are a dad, so using the, <laughs> you know, the lights are very helpful and, you know, <laughs> it helps to keep it simple for all of us. <laughs> So this is just so interesting. And, and, you know, doctors are, and especially, you know, naturopathic doctors, integrative doctors, they prescribe iodine a lot, you know, almost just kind of shooting in the dark a lot of times, right? You probably see this. Yeah. You know, right now there's uh, a lot of papers on PubMed about women who have had babies with congenital hypothyroidism. And sadly, our profession is named by name. They talk about a lot of products by name along the way for that. And it, it causes harm to people and they, they mean well, you know, they're following things they were trained in or that they read about, but it's a paradox. So because, because iodine is so essential because the thyroid pumps it in, a little bit of extra can just shut the thyroid down. That's what's not intuitive. You know, a little extra vitamin C won't give you scurvy. That doesn't happen. It's fine. You know, you might, you might get diarrhea at some point. That's about the worst of it, but a little extra iodine can shut off your thyroid. Mm -hmm. Or if you've got a latent toxic nodule, it can activate that and put you into a dangerous hyperthyroid state or it can right. trigger Graves' disease. You know, all these things can happen. Yeah. And one, one pitfall in the medical world too is just errors derived from iodine testing. You know, it's, it's, such a, it's such a mercurial, capricious, unpredictable thing in so many ways that there's tons of ways you can accurately test for it within a population. If you're not worried about what any one person's status is, you just want to know the population status, that's easy to do. And any test can work for that almost. But there's so much intra-individual variation. Like if, if, if I did 10 samples, they wouldn't all be the same. Mm -hmm. And if I did 300 samples, I could be within 90% range of what my actual levels are. Mm -hmm. But if I did 20 samples, I could only be within 10% accuracy. So there's yeah. just no great test for individuals for that. And the tests that are available often just mislead people. Right, right. What would, uh, what would be some clues maybe that a, a, a new mom gave birth to a baby that is hypothyroid? If a new mom gave birth to a baby that was hypothyroid, some yeah. clues about, what do you mean? Like you said congenital hypothyroidism. What would be yeah. some, some clues that that may be the case for a, a newborn? Oh, thankfully that's not subtle. You know, that, that's rarely not diagnosed. It's pretty, mm -hmm. it's pretty severe. These babies mm -hmm. have almost no thyroid function. So the cases in the medical literature, 
mom was taking supplemental iodine, some oftentimes on advisement of a natural doctor, mm-hmm. and the baby's thyroid was just not functional at all. And wow. some cases it does come back when they when they stop that. Other cases it does not. It can be a lifelong problem. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the iodine tolerance. Can you explain that a little bit more? What sure. you mean by that? Yeah. So every every person uh, there's there's a certain amount that if we get too little it's bad, and then a certain amount we get too much it's bad. And to some extent that will tie into our genetic variations. But some have a broad range, and they're probably going to do okay within most most typical ranges of exposure. But other people don't have as broad of a range. And sometimes that range is skewed by them being low on other nutrients that help them buffer their thyroid chemistry. You know, number one there is selenium. Mm -hmm. Uh, Zinc and iron are relevant that way too. So if someone has other nutrient deficiencies, whatever their range is might be even more narrowed just because of that. But then there's also some range that's just hardwired genetic. So, so yeah, that's what that is. And population studies, the World Health Organization has looked at massive amounts of data from areas that have been fortifying with iodine and how thyroid disease changes pre and post. You know, crazy thing, like in the US, for example, our fortifying started in 1924. And before then, goiter was common in some parts of the country. And the problem is actually so many World War I recruits that were rejected due to goiter. That's where they started thinking about this and taking it seriously. Hmm. So they fortified and the goiter belts did much better. However, in the following years, the rates of autoimmune thyroid disease went up uh, 26 fold, not wow. percent, fold. <laughs> so there's, there's massive data points. The most recent big one was Denmark. They started fortifying in the year 2000. And for 15 years in which it was tracked, their rates of thyroid disease went up 50% per year, year after years. So the World Health Organization has all this data on all these countries, and they've shown that the sweet spot is about 50 to 200 micrograms per day for daily exposure from all sources and diet, supplements, but also things we put on our skin can be big sources for people. Hmm. Like what? Well, this is pretty wild, and this is something that you really haven't, we haven't heard about elsewhere, but uh, a couple of years ago, the FDA withdrew the ability to put iodine in hand sanitizers because so many healthcare workers were getting thyroid disease and at unsafe iodine levels. So the next target will be cosmetics. And there are a large number of cosmetic products that contain it. And I've run the math on this. And, you know, so some things like, like, I'm embarrassed, but uh, so mascara is the stuff that goes in your eyelashes, right? Yes. So so that, (laughs) that often has one of those ingredients. But the amount that you actually use, the volume, is not very big, right? There's like maybe fractions of a gram. And how much of that actually comes in your bloodstream, you know? So right. I don't think that's relevant. But then there's things like conditioner or like body lotion to where a lot of that does come into your system. And iodine is a really useful chemical. It's a great preservative. It's a real nice thing to make gels even and homogenous. And it mm. keeps things from clumping up. So it's got a lot of useful properties that make it popular to use in manufacturing. And many products contain different versions of iodine, you know, sea extracts or PVP compounds. So I ran the math on this stuff and said, so you take a conditioner and, you know, I could probably use five grams. You probably need 20 grams of conditioner. <laughs> hey, my hair's not that dry. No, 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 no. I'm no, sorry. No, no, I'm just how kidding. Much you, how much hair you have. <laughs> <I'm> kidding. <laughs> I, I, no, I don't have a lot of hair. That's what I was oh. implying. <laughs> so yeah, so a woman could use 10, 20 grams pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And then you think about, well, what percent of that is an iodine ingredient? It could commonly be 1% to 3%. Mm. 
And how would and you know of, if your conditioner has it? Well, of that, of that ingredient, about 12% of that is iodine. And of all that, you'll absorb about 4% across your skin. So you run all that math and remember that 50 to 200 microgram range, you can walk out of the shower and assimilate two, 3,000 micrograms from your conditioner. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah. So ingredients, PVP is a big thing to look for. There's actually a lot of different names for it, but that's the most common one. And then anything that sounds like seaweed, you know, kelp, seaweed extracts, sea extracts. Oh, right, right, that's right. That's another big thing to look for in cosmetics. Wow. Fascinating. So, so you said 50 to 200, that's about what is like the daily requirement. So that's, that's the safest range for general health and for mm-hmm. maintaining thyroid health. When someone has thyroid disease, they're out to reverse. The thyroid reset diet guides them to be under 100 micrograms. Mm-hmm. Dang. So it's pretty much where, a, you know, a doctor can almost assume that a patient has enough, um, even if it's off, it's probably too much, but it would be wise to, to test right? Well, so there's testing that can help you see what your iodine trends are, you mm-hmm. know, whether your, your iodine status, it's been called. So whether your status is elevating, decreasing, or staying steady. And urinary iodine to creatinine ratios can help you estimate your iodine status. They don't really, they're not, nothing is perfect for your iodine levels. There is, there is a, an app that's almost done an iodine inventory that can help you just put in, you put in like your foods, your salts, your various stuff, you can get a sense of what your typical day's intake is like. So that's probably the easiest way to gauge that. Mm-hmm. So for someone listening who wants to know how is my iron, my iodine status, it would be getting either the, you said the iodine creatinine Inventory. ratio. Yeah, iodine creatinine ratio, which, uh-huh. yeah, many, many labs, I'm not, I have no marketing ties to any labs, but uh, LabCorp is a regional lab that does do that test. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quest Diagnostics. They don't do that test, but they do urinary iodine and they do creatinine. So someone has to like run the math on the final product to get it. But, but yeah, that can be, that can be done. Mm-hmm. And wow, the, the so target there is basically less than 50 for, for eliminating iodine and above 200 for elevating iodine. So it's an overlap with those daily intakes and in, in units, thankfully. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Handy. Yeah. So um, if someone, if you wanted to increase their iodine, you know, in their body, do you have a, a particular one that you like the most? Is it diet or is there a supplement that you tend to go towards? I don't see deficiency so much. Right. <laughs> well, it, it's in everything has some, so nothing has right. none. So eating food, you won't get none. Uh, there are populations that have run low historically, and there are subpopulations that can be low. And funny thing is that there's being low in it and there's getting thyroid disease and they're different things. So for example, it's been thought for a while that pregnant women can be running low based upon what we think they would need. But now there's been some big studies looking at what are their trends for actual thyroid disease or the baby getting thyroid disease. And the Cochrane Review Group, you know about them, but they're a group that looks at medical questions and analyzes large amounts of data. They've argued that now for iodine supplements with pregnant women, for example, that there's no benefit to mom's health or baby's health. And they actually raise thyroid antibodies and increase the rates of morning sickness. So even though it's more meaningful to see what happens than just what is someone's intake. And in the case of how iodine affects someone's potential to recover, the studies that I mentioned about people getting better by lowering iodine, the levels of iodine when they were tested beforehand didn't predict who would respond and who would not respond. Now, if someone reduces their iodine and they don't respond, then that test I mentioned can help to see if they're just not going to respond 
or if they just didn't get down to the target, if they had some hidden sources they weren't aware of. But yeah, mm -hmm. testing doesn't predict who will get better and who won't. So interesting. So just so I can wrap my head around it, let's say just out of 100 healthy individuals that don't have any thyroid issues, how many of those 100 people do you think could use more iodine? Zero? More yeah. iodine? Yeah, who would need to take iodine? Usually it would be zero, right? Because they would all have sufficient from what... So, so then we think about that in terms of just a, a global, or I'm mm -hmm. sorry, like a per, per nation status or per... For Americans, I would say, yeah. yeah. So our American average is above the safe target. Okay. And then for 100 women with low thyroid, um, let's say specifically Hashimoto's, that would be also zero, right? Because in most cases, they need to decrease the iodine to help improve the tolerance. Is that correct? Well, their tolerance may not change. Their tolerance okay. might improve if they benefit their micronutrient status in some ways, if that's a factor for them. Gotcha. But it can just help their thyroid get rid of the extra iodine that's just bouncing around and irritating things. Okay. The basic version is that iodine, it's, it's so volatile. It's, it's, a, it's a great disinfectant. So it's kind of mm -hmm. like bleach. You know, it's a free source of free radicals. You know, iodine and chlorine are similar, similar elements. Right. So in the thyroid, the little, excuse me, the little bit of excess it's generating free radicals and it makes the thyroid proteins appear foreign and it makes the body attack them. So thyroglobulin becomes an antigen to the immune response. But the cool news is that if that excess is eliminated, that process can reverse itself. That's so cool. So you would say that iodized salt should probably be done away with, right? Because I think- That's a really easy parallel swap for someone who's trying to get their thyroid better when they're yeah. looking at the extra sources. Because they can, they can do salt. There's yeah, a lot of great versions that don't have significant amounts of iodine. How is there such a disconnect where salt is iodized and yet this is such an excess for people? And if you think about it just from like a money standpoint for just the health healthcare, right? This is causing so much money for people who are having- thyroid problems, but it's also where salt is iodized. I mean, it's a crazy now, salt disconnect. Is, salt is a contributor. There's a couple main ones. It's actually not the biggest by far. Okay. Uh, what is the biggest contributor? Is the it the body care? People, well, and this is a funny thing too. So just think about various diets people try that, that sometimes help their thyroid function. So the, the biggest sources are processed grain products and dairy products. Hmm. So it's, it's not so much gluten per se, and it's not so much grains per se, but bread at the store, uh, croissants, rolls, muffins. And this is weird, but many products that you look at might list iodized dough conditioners. And you would think that's what it is, but they've done investigations in which they've bought bread products and analyzed the iodine content and then partitioned them for those that have iodine things in the label and those that don't. It's not the predictor. <laughs> we don't really know. There's something along the way in terms of processing breads where they pour in a lot of iodine. But you that is so wild. So the biggest sources of too much iodide for people is grains, processed grains and dairy. Yeah. So Whoa. dairy, it's a contaminant. Uh, it's a teat sanitizer. It's also a sanitizer for the tubing and the piping that's used. And that's also part of fish meal, which is a cheap protein source given to cows. But it's, it's not really innately there. It's just, a, it's just a contaminant. It's a teat sanitizer? Yep. Oh, so if it's, if you're getting your dairy from like a really clean source, like from maybe a small farm, are you thinking it's in, OD in there? Or in the like, coming years, that may, yeah. may, they're actually looking at non-iodized tea sanitizers because it's also an irritant and it makes cows more apt to get mastitis, but there's no options that are available as of right now. There's some that probably will be out in the near future, but, but yeah, it's a pretty common thing that way. Do you not really do dairy yourself? Um, I don't do much. Yeah. I, same. Yeah. yeah. 
This is fascinating. So a lot of folks go gluten-free and they get better. Or yeah, a lot of people right. go autoimmune paleo and they might get better. They've cut that stuff out. Do you think that's also, a big reason why is because of the iodine? Yeah. Whoa. I, I've done some math. So the average, I actually spent some time Googling like most popular American breakfast, most popular American lunch, dinner, and then assayed. So what's the range of typical iodine in these foods? And the most typical daily meal is going to be like 500 or more micrograms conservatively because there's so much variation. But then I went and Googled uh, most popular vegan breakfast, you know, and same, same process. And then AIP and went through some, some of our friends' cookbooks and stuff. And what would you have on these menus? And yeah, the vegan average is like 60 micrograms and the AIP average is like 80 micrograms. Wow. And there's a lot of data showing that vegans have much lower rates of thyroid disease. So, yeah. Interesting. And you, you would think if you didn't know this, that that would be due to less of the inflammation or less of the gut right? It's helping to heal the gut. But yet those but, diets are conflicting. Right. You know, those right. diets argue with each other as far as what's bad and what's not bad. But the common thread is they're low iodine diets. Right, right, exactly. In terms of thyroid function, at least. So, okay, what, what happens if someone lowers their iodine while on thyroid medication? What's, how does that play out? Well, so this is, this is important. And the bulk of the studies we have are on people that were not yet on treatment. Um, however, those who are on medication this may affect them as well. And there's two ways it can. So one of which is, we've already mentioned, their thyroid might step up and work more. Um, some people don't have a thyroid, it was taken out. I used to say that was a situation in which they would never have their function improve. Mm -hmm. But a few months ago, we had a patient that had a lot of the tissue regrown. What? <laughs> so, so I don't say never about anything anymore, <laughs> rarely. Dang, the yeah, body's so amazing. I know, crazy world. But yeah, so some people you wouldn't expect they would change much. And likely that's not, that's not typical. So yeah. some people probably won't have their thyroid make much more ever. But then we, we now know that the extra iodine not only changes what the thyroid releases, but it changes how the body responds to thyroid hormones. So if you're many who are taking hormones still feel like they're not getting enough, they still feel hypothyroid and the body can be resisting those hormones. Same thing due to any excess of iodine. So when someone's on treatment, if they do have their glands start to make more, the important thing is that their doctor can catch that and then make adjustments they might need. So they're not now getting too much. Yeah. So, yeah. So I would think if someone's doing, you know, a few months of, of really limiting, you know, doing the thyroid reset, that they would have their thyroid checked maybe every like four to six weeks or so, would you say? To... Yeah, that's exactly what I encourage. Yeah. If, if they don't, they can be exposed to harm from too much, but also it can block their thyroid from improving because the signal telling their thyroid to grow, their TSH can just go far too low. And now the mm -hmm. gland can't get better because it's, no one's talking to it anymore. Right, right. Um, are there any considerations for maybe ladies who are doing the, the reset and helping to eliminate the excess iodine in terms of detoxification? Do they tolerate it pretty well? Do they feel bad while they're doing this? That's an awesome question. And it's, yeah, it's not so much the sort of thing to where someone is expected to have detox reactions. So the thyroid eliminates iodine by packaging it in hormones and sending it out or through what's called non-hormonal iodine release. And the latter is not a lot. So when someone's on thyroid treatment, all they've got is the non-hormonal release that's going on. And it's, it's pretty gradual. Mm -hmm. But the general thought is that because iodine is what makes thyroid hormone, the gland has to have a safety mechanism. Otherwise, extra iodine would mean just way too much hormone, and that can be lethal. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like you, you blow a fuse. You get too much current in the wires, and the fuse blows. So yeah, so the extra stops the gland from making it, 
but also it makes the body fight it everywhere else. So when you lower it, those things start to improve and you just have to be able to make adjustments. Man, I, had a, I wish I had a time machine because I go back to when I was a, a naturopathic student and I was working with uh, an ND there and she would do high doses of iodine. She, her thought process was it helped to detox the thyroid, which I don't know how that works, but I, oh. I do remember that, that that is when, and I think at first I felt better, so I went overkill on it and I ended up just really damaging my thyroid, I think, because after that point I had to go up and up and up on my thyroid medication. You know, so the, the rationale there is some argue that iodine pushes out halides and they argue that bromine or chloride are stored right. in the thyroid and taken out. And yeah, you know, it's all, all this stuff is, is available for public knowledge with these pathways have been mapped out and it's it just, just, no, it just doesn't do that. Yeah. And actually we now know that bromide is an essential mineral. It's been categorized most recently as an essential oh. element. Of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they actually did studies in which they gave people pretty big doses of bromide or placebos and watch their thyroid function. And there was no negative effects at all. But we now know it's, it's essential for some aspects of basement membrane formation. That's wild. So then if someone does this thyroid reset and they really avoid the iodine and help to you know, eliminate the excess, um, is there you know, a plan to help to slowly reintegrate it safely? Reintegrate it, meaning the like iodine, iodine sources, yeah, like you yeah, know, yeah. Seaweed and that was the like whole that. red light, yellow light, green light, exactly, thing. yeah. And if someone's already well stabilized, uh, you know, we all have some tolerance, and it, we, we don't really know exactly what our tolerance is until we exceed it. So, so the, the maintenance range that 50 to 50 to 200 that's safe for people for maintenance. People probably have some leeway that they could get away with different amounts on occasion, but no one could say exactly how much or how often. So, good, good mm -hmm. to keep it safe. Uh, one of my uh, assistants here at the office, they wanted to know, because I told them I was interviewing you. They're like, ooh, ask him this, ask him that. <laughs> so on the topic of hormones, how, how do you see your, the thyroid affecting hormones, like sex hormones or adrenals? Do you feel like it goes more that direction or is it the other way? Well, I, you know, you, you're great in this world. They all, they all play together. They all interact in various ways. And the thing we know the most about is the way in which estrogen affects thyroid binding globulin. Mm -hmm. So uh, when a woman has that, when she's having normal menstrual cycles, or if she's on hormone replacement of any type, or if she's uh, taking oral contraceptive, that will make her body about 20, 30% resistant to thyroid hormone. So mm -hmm. if all things work well, and she's not on treatment, and her thyroid is working fine, it'll step up and compensate. But when someone's on thyroid treatment, they'll probably need some dose modifications. And then vice versa. If someone is discontinuing hormone replacement, or they're going into menopause, then yeah, they they won't need quite as much. So that one's really well mapped out. Mm -hmm. And then on the topic of adrenals, do you feel like adrenals are typically more of the culprit or is it the other way around? Or is it just both how they kind of affect yeah, each other? It, it can be both. It can be either. They can be contributors. So mm -hmm. in a healthy system, we make this cortisol uh, slope. We make a bunch in the morning and we shut it off at night. And that's part of what makes our cells take in appropriate amounts of thyroid hormone. They have the right permeability. So if the cortisol slope is not there, if cortisol is backward or always low or always high, that can make the body a little more resistant to thyroid hormone as well. That makes sense. What about, well, you go into this, you, you did go into this, but they wanted to know just foods to help to thyroid and foods to avoid. You know, we talk about a lot with nutrition here. Any other ones that we didn't mention? So the biggest sources that, yeah, the most relevant ones are going to be the dairy and the processed grain products. Mm -hmm. Past that point, other foods have it. We talked a little bit about salt. 
Uh, we talked about sea vegetables, seafood. This is the one that I, mm. that I, that I hate the most because yeah. the benefits of that, but many types are really erratic and many types are just way, way too high. So there are some safer types that are generally lower in iodine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the ones that's I've gotten into a lot lately is actually calamari. So Ooh. there's, there's nice squid steaks. You can get it pretty much any. Have you ever used those before? I love calamari. There's this really good Thai restaurant that makes gluten-free calamari. Have you, have you had squid steaks before? No. That's a new thing on me too. <laughs> so they're, they're, like, they're like steaks and they're, they're, they're clean. They're sustainable. They're, cool. they're not expensive as far as seafood goes. They're, they themselves are not particularly flavorful, but they're an awesome texture. And you put some lemon, some garlic, and sear them on each side real quick. They are so flipping It's like good. tofu, right? It's just however you cook it. You can make it's, it yeah, it's like pretty yeah. much, yeah. They're pretty neutral in taste, like a real neutral, mild white fish type taste. Wow, but, that's cool. Yeah. So what about but, something like, like wild salmon or something? Would that be an issue? Um, yeah, in terms yeah. of that reset stage, you would avoid. Okay. The maintenance stage, that can be one of the yellow light foods. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. What about um, oysters? Oysters, yeah, I love oysters so much. They're they're up. They can be up there. They're yeah, high moderate. I would think so too. But one other category I forgot to mention was egg yolks. You know, they can they can also be denser sources of that. They're they're usually they're they're a good yellow light food when someone's uh-huh. stable. They're not as erratic, and that's the bizarre thing. I mentioned too little is bad, too much is bad. But big swings in intake, even within the range, can also be a culprit. So the oh. really erratic foods are ones that I highlight. What about lobster? <laughs> Crab yeah, legs. Those are up there. <laughs> um, and what about fish oil? That probably wouldn't be as much of an issue as opposed to wild salmon or something, right? You no, know, generally not. I assay okay. our products to be sure. And the, the, the thing going for fish oil is that the volume we're consuming is rather low. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the drawback about some foods is that if you're talking about, you know, like one part per million iodine and you're having a hundred gram serving, that's a lot. But if you're talking about one part per million and you have a one gram serving of fish oil, that's not that much of a big deal. Mm-hmm. What about COVID and thyroid? Anything we know about? I know this isn't a COVID-focused show, but no, no, it's all good. Yeah, anything on that you can you can speak to or? Yeah, early on in the pandemic, it was thought that thyroid disease could be a risk factor for catching it or for having complications. Mm-hmm. Then it was thought that autoimmune disease in general could be, and it turned out that neither of those were true, thankfully. Uh, many with autoimmune disease are on immunosuppressant medication. So that was kind of the confusion there. So it's not the autoimmune disease itself. It's more so like biologic medications for RA or something. Gotcha. Uh, we now know that COVID can be a trigger of subacute thyroiditis. Hmm. That's a rather common complication after the infection. This is an odd thing, but the thyroid always has four to six weeks worth of stored hormone when it's working well. And after some types of viral illness, it can become inflamed. And as it's irritated, it can just squirt out all that it's got. Mm. And so for a little while, you've got way too much thyroid hormone. The common cycle with it is that it's painful. It's quite painful. And that someone has hyperthyroid symptoms. They're, they're jittery. Their heart is racing. They, they can't sleep. They're anxious. They feel awful. And it gradually goes back to where they're underactive for a while. And then they're normal. And that's often about like an eight to 12 week process start to finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's subacute thyroiditis. That's interesting. Um, I don't know if we asked this, but but what about uh, Hashimoto's versus Graves in terms of the iodine discussion? Yeah, so both both are relevant. The the larger body of data is on Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. We do have an 
iodine certainly can be an instigator for latent graves. And anecdotally, there have been many who have talked about benefiting from graves by following iodine regulation. But we've had the most clinical trials on Hashimoto's, uh, non-autoimmune hypothyroidism, and then subclinical hypothyroidism. Those three things have had the most studies as far as reversing from, from this approach. Cool. What would people get out of your book that we haven't gone over? And um, yeah, let's just talk um, more about your book specifically. Of, good low iodine recipes. <laughs> There's that. Uh -huh. and, you know, more of the science and all the, all the references, but, and also just the whole, I don't know, a lot of, lot of case stories I put in there. It's, it's a cool thing. People can get better. You know, I've, I've known, I've been optimistic for a long time about people being able to improve on their symptoms. And people have often said, hey, I want my thyroid to work by itself. And I get, and I get that, but I've always tried to redirect it to, yes, and let's get you feeling better. But now there's good data saying that many can also have their, their, have their cake and eat it too, so to speak. They can have the gland also improve. What's the hope for those who are on thyroid medication, um, maybe short term, but also those who have been on it for decades? You know, an easy thought is to understand how much their own output is. Here's some really simple math that anyone can follow along. So uh, this is different whether you're male or female. There, there's some nuances, but generalized math, a pound of an adult's body weight corresponds to about one microgram of T4 that their thyroid would make. So that's a common, you mentioned Synthroid back when. So if someone were 100 pounds and they were taking a 100 microgram dose of Synthroid, and their levels were stable, they're probably not making any thyroid hormone. So yeah, if that makes sense, they're taking pretty much all their body would be expected to make anyway. Now that 100 micrograms is about the same as one grain of natural thyroid. Um, the milligrams for natural thyroid are different brand to brand, but the grains are all the same. So about one grain, so about 100 pounds of body weight is about one grain of natural thyroid. So if someone's 150 pounds, they're taking a one and a half or a two grain dose, probably aren't making a whole heck of a lot. Now, let's say the same person is taking a half grain dose. Well, they're making about what, um, a quarter, they're making about three quarters of what their body needs all by themselves. So they're a more likely candidate to see a big shift. Now, that's in terms of their output, but that doesn't take away their chance of improving in terms of their response. Because so many people who are on medication, and maybe will be longer term, still might feel like it's not helping them as much as they would like. They feel like their body's resisting it in some way. Mm -hmm. So they still have the chance to benefit by making their body more responsive to the hormone. Besides the patient who had their thyroid actually start to grow back, what would be <laughs> some other favorite, maybe miracle stories or cases that you've experienced for patients? Oh, I saw a gal named Janine that just reached out a month or so ago. And she talked about having about, I think, 12 years of being on replacement therapy and you know, close to a full physiologic dose. And not, not doing better, you know, seeing improvements here and there when doses were raised. At one point, she was on an unsafely high dose when she first came to our practice. And she's, as she got going well, she was one of our earlier beta testers for the diet that's in the book. She saw that she kept needing her doses lowered. And a few months ago, she said she's been on none and staying stable since then and just really feeling better than she has all along. So that's, that's pretty that's cool exciting. Thing. Yeah, yeah, that's unheard of, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, what would you make of, uh, I love running labs past you because you're just so smart with all this stuff. So let's say if you have a case where a patient has a very high TSH, but also a very high T3, yeah. um, what, would, what could that be a clue of? So by very high T3, you're talking within range or? Even like around a six, like a free T3. 
like a TSH that's super high, maybe like about a six or maybe six to nine, something like that. But, um, but a free T3 that was like around a six. I saw okay, so a couple of things can happen. So one of which is that there's a lot of issues with timing of thyroid labs to have them be accurate. Mm, okay. uh, timing relative to the menstrual cycle. This is huge. I'm glad you asked about this. Mm. So when to test your labs completely depends upon where you are in your menstrual cycle. Uh, easy rule, one through nine are fine. Uh, uh, 11 through uh, one through nine are fine and 21 through 28 are great. <laughs> oh, okay. But wow. between, between 20, between 10 and 20, this is back to that same thyroid binding globulin. Your levels can be meaningless or unpredictable or inconsistent. So yeah, so timing with the menstrual cycle. Uh, any supplements you take that contain any biotin or probiotics can also goop up your thyroid levels within about three days. So you want to hold supplements for three days before taking your labs. That's a big one. Uh, thyroid hormones are circadian. They vary per time of day. So you want to measure them in the morning between about 6 to 9 a.m. Um, no one gets their labs drawn at 6, you know, but so not, not too late in the morning, not after 9 a.m. Uh, you want to be fasting and you want to have not taken your thyroid medication the day of your blood test prior to your, your labs. You do it afterward, not before your labs. So those five rules, the labs will make a lot more sense. Fascinating. Uh, now, the scenario you talked about, it can be a matter of someone who's on, maybe they're on a T3-containing medicine. It might not be enough for them. They might have taken it before they had their blood test. That mm -hmm. could cause a pattern like that. That's one. Another one is that in many cases, so T3 and T4 are completely different than the TSH in terms of how they respond. The TSH is the first thing to change as your thyroid status does. It's the leading indicator. The free hormones... Think about a duck going upstream, like, like swimming upstream. This is, you've heard this analogy. You don't know how hard they're paddling, right? But you know how hard they're moving. So the T3 and T4, that's how fast the duck is moving. But the TSH is how hard the duck is paddling. Mm. So the body works to keep those things in range even when things are off. So it's only at the final levels of too much or too little that the TSH go through the roof or drop off. Mm -hmm. But in between, they might even do the opposite. So to talk about what the body's doing, as you're going through stages of hypothyroidism, you're holding on to thyroid hormone. You're trying not to let it go. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, you're intentionally making more of it into T4 than you would, I'm sorry, into T3 than you would otherwise. And right. sometimes that can cause T3 to run on the high side when there's too little. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, another interesting uh, you know, pattern that I, with this patient was a very high prolactin. So I, I wondered if there might've been something with the pituitary. And that on. can go both ways. So the hypothalamus yeah. tells the pituitary to make prolactin. It also tells it to make, uh, there's also thyrotropin releasing hormone, which mm -hmm. is what tells the pituitary to make TSH. And thyrotropin releasing hormone can also stimulate prolactin. So, so sometimes, in some cases, a pituitary adenoma could right. cause factitial elevations of prolactin and TSH. Okay. Yeah, and that's what I was hand, suspecting. Yeah, if, if, if there weren't, some exogenous, I'm sorry, if they weren't, they weren't taking a pill before their lab, that's one thing to consider. It can also be that if someone's badly enough hypothyroid, the stimulation to the pituitary can also stimulate the, the prolactin. So, Whoa. Yeah. Dang, I just learned so much. And, you know, no doctor is, even super smart doctors 
and if you doctors listening are, then good job, because I wasn't doing this, but testing the thyroid on certain days of the cycle. So you don't yeah. think of it as- Totally changes it. Yeah. And this, is, this is the thing that has been like such a game changer for us is that people, a big frustration they have is that their levels won't stabilize and they'll, they'll change their diet, they'll change their medications and things don't go in the way they expect. And I'd say, I don't know how many times it's just a matter of just not testing in ways that are consistent. And supplements, so biotin, if you look at lists of how many lab assays biotin can disrupt, it's almost everything you can think of. Wow. I mean, COVID, vitamin D, ferritin, but no joke, it's like two, 300 lab analytes COVID? are not accurate. Yes, yes, COVID antibody tests are not accurate if you've taken biotin the last few days. Um, like it can make a false positive or a negative? Um, more so false positive, but in, it can be inconsistent. Yeah. So oh biotin gosh. is a part of, of uh, ELISA amino assay panels. And it's just, it's not a matter of biotin changing your body chemistry. It's a matter of biotin interacting with laboratory reagents. So, so yeah, you just at least three days. And then we've got data about probiotics skewing thyroid antibodies, causing false elevations of thyroid antibodies. So yeah, so just no supplements three days prior. I wish I could just put a zip drive in your brain and then just <laughs> pour it into mine. <laughs> it's like, your brain is fun. So fun. Um, anything else I should ask you? I think I've probably picked your brain enough. You know, the exciting message is that people can get better. And yeah. that's, what, that's what you and I, that's what our lives are all about is trying to make a difference that way. And so it's just like, it just lights me up to find so much more hope and potential than I realized was there before. 100%. I know so many patients with this just feel like a victim. They just feel like, gosh, I'm just forever, you know, doomed with my thyroid and I'm just going to have to keep increasing my medication forever. And uh, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. not. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you again so much for um, coming on this show. I really, really appreciate it. And um, for your book, The Thyroid Reset Diet Book, when is that released or when does that come out? It's up for pre-order. January 19th is, is the pub date. So yeah, awesome. coming out pretty quick. Right on. So all you guys definitely go support Dr. Allen. He's doing such great work. And um, if you know of anyone dealing with a thyroid issue, give this to them because I would bet good money that they're not, you know, getting this information from their doctor, even if it's a great doctor, because <laughs> <laughs> um, this is such new, you know, and groundbreaking information. So let's help help ourselves, help each other, and definitely spread the word. So thank you again for being my guest. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for spending the time with me. Always good to see you. You too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dr. Low Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. And for more after the show, you can head over to drlowshow.com where you can find the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to the show and share with all your friends. And please head over to iTunes and leave the show a five-star review and leave a comment. I read each and every one and they warm my heart. Thank you so much again for joining us. I promise to keep bringing you fun, inspiring, empowering content. Until next time, lots of love, and I'll talk to you soon.